Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. In this episode of the Smart Economy Podcast, I sat down and chatted with Sid Powell, the CEO and co-founder of Maple Finance. Maple Finance is an institutional credit marketplace built on Ethereum. Through the platform, premium corporate and institutional borrowers can take out under-collateralized loans from credit pools, which are increasingly being based on real-world assets. The Maple team themselves don't provide the capital for the pools, but rather the pool delegates who are responsible for underwriting the loans and performing due diligence on the borrowers. In this conversation, Sid and I talk about his background in debt capital markets at a bank and working conversely on the client side at a lending business, the conceptualization of Maple Finance to its 2021 launch, the types of institutional clients Maple Finance seeks, the highs and lows of 2022, offering loans backed on assets that aren't correlated with crypto, and much more. Just a reminder, Nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, that nothing should be taken as financial advice, and that the host or guests may hold tokens discussed in any given episode. With that said, I really enjoyed chatting with Sid, and I hope you enjoy the conversation too. Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast. Today I'm joined by Sid Powell, the CEO and co-founder of Maple Finance. How are you doing today, Sid? I'm doing good. Thanks, Dylan. Glad to be on here. Yeah, great to have you. You know, I heard about Maple Finance in kind of headlines from last year, uh, good and bad, but that external market circumstances, which we'll get into, but you have a really cool background. So I want to dig into that a little bit. Before you conceptualized Maple Finance with your co-founder Joe in 2020, and then you later launched in 2021, you had a variety of different roles in the kind of traditional finance banking sector in Australia. So could you just give a little bit of your background at National Australia Bank and at Angle Finance? Yeah, sure. So I began my career in, uh, in banking and I was working in securitization, which means we would be on a deal team that would help a lending company who's not a bank to borrow from both banks and investors in debt capital markets so that they could have the dry powder that they need to make car loans, home loans, credit card loans. And so it was, uh, it was a fairly mixed set of lending businesses we were working with. But the important thing was that being on the deal side of that business, we got to see how debt capital markets worked you know, the project that is helping a company to borrow hundreds of millions of dollars. And then from there, you know, it was a very steep learning curve being in there initially, but then you start to get the hang of it. And then I was very interested to see how it works from the client side. So I transitioned over to working at a lending business and was running the treasury. And that meant seeing how their technology stack works, how they produce reports. When I was a banker, I would just receive an Excel spreadsheet once a month or, or a PDF that said how all of the loans that that company had written were doing. And then I got to transition across and see how they actually produce those reports. The difficulty that can go into it, the amount of time that's spent in Excel, and then the challenges of working with about... A lot of people might not know this, but when you do a secured or a securitized bond issuance, you know there's like six different parties you work with. Lawyers, custodians, trustees, security trustees... And they all take a piece of fees. 
And, you know, it all contributes to this kind of hidden cost of doing business as a lender and, and dealing with debt capital markets. And so anyway, so I worked with my co-founder, Joe, there, and then it was mid-2018, we started learning about smart contracts. And we were really interested by the idea of, well, instead of just spending three days putting together a spreadsheet and emailing that to somebody to put it into a PDF and send it back to me halfway through the next month, but we just automate all of this. Ultimately, what stood out to me about smart contracts is that you can automate the transfer of money. You can't really do that if you're not a bank and you're dealing with a bank. That's why there are multi-billion dollar companies like Plaid and Stripe. All they do is connect real business that takes place outside of a bank with transfers of money around a bank's internal systems. What a blockchain does is it takes the transfer of money outside of somebody's internal system and puts it on this worldwide computer that everybody can see and everybody can read off and allows you to program rules into it. And so I think it naturally takes something that was a private technology and makes it a piece of commodity infrastructure that we can all build businesses off. And so the real insight in what we want to do with Maple is, well, what we can do is take this emailing of money, this automation of payments and build a business on top of that by using that as infrastructure. And so what Maple has tried to do is build a business that targets lending companies and that lowers the cost to them of doing lending operations. So we, we lower the cost of middle and back office functions and give them a competitive edge. So it should ultimately stand up at a competitive level where companies who use this technology are more profitable than their competitors. Competition or you know markets just don't move forward unless there is that competitive element. Awesome. Yeah. So full disclosure, I've never uh, worked in the banking sector. I have no personal insights into what it's like with traditional finance institutions. But while you were describing all of that, it sounded very similar to the home buying purchase process that I went through when I, I bought my condo. I had to give fees to all sorts of people. And there was all sorts of communication about sharing data and information that just seemed so outdated and so cumbersome and so paper intensive. And I was just thinking, it's 2020. Why is none of this digitized? Why do I have to sign a million different pieces of paper? Uh, why can't I just like stamp a single signature and then have this be replicated across processes for the lender and, and everybody else? So it kind of resonates a little bit from like a retail perspective. But before we go even further into the Maple Finance rabbit hole, you did kind of allude to learning a little bit more about smart contracts in 2018. When was the first time you heard about cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin? Was it Ethereum? When was the first time you heard about it? And what were your initial thoughts? <laughs> that is a painful question because it was in 2014. And it was one of, my, uh, one of the graduates I was with in banking was telling me about Bitcoin and how huge it was going to be. And uh, I looked at what Warren Buffett said about it, and he was saying it was a total scam. And so I would, uh, I would repeat that. And then my view of it was definitely colored by the fact that I was inside banking. So I naturally viewed it as competition, where people were saying, well, this is going to disrupt banks. I was there looking at where I was getting my paycheck from and saying, well, you know, hell no, this Bitcoin stuff is worthless. Going outside and being a client of a bank as a business and seeing how difficult it was to work with them and how many costs were passed on to us that then ate into our margins and needed to be passed on to our customers. And then learning about smart contracts, that was what kind of got me into it initially. So 
you know, I started buying like Ethereum and Bitcoin back in 2018, but I was more interested in learning about the smart contract side of things. Like it was really, it was really that that piqued my interest. And so I started reading all the white papers about different, you know, securitization structures, different token projects. Then in the start of 2019, I wrote a white paper for the original concept of Maple, which was exactly what I had been doing in, in banking. It was, let's take securitization, let's tranche debt out, and let's do that on chain. But there was no DeFi then. So I think Maker was probably the only thing in DeFi that existed. There was Compound that just launched, like, I forget whether it was V1 or V2, but I remember using that and playing around with it. I remember playing with uh, Dharma, trying to like write a loan and then trying to request a loan so that it could be funded and, and being confused why that matching engine wasn't wasn't working. And then set protocols. So there were like four or five different projects were the totality of DeFi. And what we did was I started trying to find a software development company that would tell me whether my idea was stupid or not, and then get them to, to build a proof of concept. And so, you know, Joe and I were putting our own savings into trying to make that proof of concept happen. And that was mid-2019. So people were still saying that DeFi was, was going to be too small. We were idiots for trying to do loans on chain. Then we know that loans wouldn't work. People would just scam it. And you forget, but the very early days of PayPal were a lot of fraud was happening in payment processing. And so that just becomes an engineering problem that you need to solve. But it was uh, it, a, lot of, a lot of the kind of the early conceptual changes for Maple were happening through 2019. And then... 2020, what we realized was, start of 2020, we realized that we needed to have yield generating assets in order to be able to tranche them because there was nothing that you could tranche. And so we started doing lending and so started doing very basic, very small scale loans. But these were people who were anonymous, who were requesting them. And you weren't sure if you were going to get your money back. But we, we also built a proof of concept for that. And so, you, you know, you write a couple of loans to people who want to be early supporters. But then we realized that it wasn't going to be scalable. You couldn't earn enough in fees to compensate you for the amount of time you have to spend underwriting an individual. And you can understand the nature of a business and its propensity to earn profits and a return above its operating expenses. But it was very difficult to do that with individuals. So as we progress through 2020, we're kind of in the wilderness. So we're thinking, where does this go? Can this scale? And as we got to the middle of 2020, we uh, sort of merged the two ideas. So let's do lending, but to institutions, and let's pool it and tranche it so that we can give people speed of execution, clarity that they'll be able to get their loans funded, and also diversify the risk. And so that we, we paired lending to institutions with this idea of pooling. That was, that was V1 of Maple. But people still thought it wasn't going to work back then. Yeah. And so uh, peppered throughout this conversation, um, I'm going to ask for just some like Eli 5 terms. So yeah, yeah, please. Just keep in mind that that's going to pop up every now and then. So in doing my uh, due diligence on Maple Finance, something that really stuck out to me that really made the concept of what you guys are working on super simple was calling your platform, um, relating it to Shopify. Yes. Can you explain what you mean by that? We often refer to Maple as like Shopify, but for lending. So Shopify supports e-commerce businesses. If you want to open up and run an e-commerce business, you go to Shopify and it gives you a tool set that you can use to list products online, take payments, ship those products to people. So it's a tool set to be an e-commerce business, but they are not the e-commerce business themselves. 
with Maple, we wanted to create a tool set to be a lending business, but we didn't want to be the lending business ourselves. So we created infrastructure to aggregate capital, to send it out as loans, to record the performance of those loans, and then to pass back the interest that is earned on those loans to the lenders who deposited into a pool, and then a front end on which to list that. So without being the balance sheet ourselves, because that would be very capital intensive, we're able to support lending businesses. And we also, we liked the idea of having an asset-like business model. So if you look at companies like Stripe, they are infrastructure and infrastructure scales. And you know it's better for Apple to create the app store and take a piece of the volume that transacts on the app store rather than building all of the apps themselves because then they can't get as much volume. And so we didn't want to have to underwrite every loan on the platform ourselves or source that capital and take the balance sheet risk. We just wanted to provide a really scalable way for other people to make their lending businesses more profitable. Cool. Thank you. And that's also a really interesting kind of model that your platform is bringing where you just connect like... uh, And I used to be a city planner and we would call it the first and last mile. So when you get off a bus, you get off a train, you're trying to like, what's the last mile for me to get to my destination? Am I going to have to walk? Am I going to have to take a bike? Am I going to have to take a taxi cab? And so that was kind of like a large problem in the planning realm when it came to transportation issues. And so it sounds like that's what Maple's doing is providing that first mile, last mile solution. Now, before we dig deeper into the conversation, I do need an Eli 5 moment. Could you just share with me and with our listeners in simple terms what a debt capital market is? Yeah. So if you, Dylan, are running a business, let's say you you really want to expand this podcast. And so you need to buy a bunch of new equipment you need finance for it. So you either have your own savings, but let's leave them aside. And let's say the two ways you can do it are you can find somebody who wants to share in the risk and they put in equity. The other way you could do it is you could borrow money from a bank, from a lending company, from another investor or lender. And so though together, equity and debt are capital markets as a whole. And when we're talking about debt capital markets, we're talking about sourcing the debt part of that equation. The debt capital markets is therefore connecting lenders and investors with borrowers. But on the lender side of that, what you have is asset managers, endowments, pension funds, insurance companies, banks, non-bank lenders, high net worths, family offices. But what they're looking for in common is a rate of return, like a borrowing rate on the loans that they provide to you. And then they might work with structurers who manage the risk, who intermediate it. And so the space that we're tackling is debt capital markets. We want to make it easier for innovative companies to borrow. And currently, a lot of that market actually kind of happens almost OTC or over the counter. Like if you want to borrow, you have to find an investment bank to broker it. There's no listing of the people who could lend to you. Similarly, if you wanted to lend, there's no listing of, of the type of companies that you can lend to. And so a big part of the, the technology lift here is making this stuff more legible by having a kind of venue where you can read about it. You can see what loans are outstanding. Perfect. Thank you. So um, when there's a pool of liquidity or a pool of capital that becomes available, it's uh, uh, Maple Finance calls it a credit pool. And there are financial firms that either act as the credit pool manager or they delegate responsibility to that. So could you share a little bit of information about who these credit pool managers are and what their role is in Maple Finance? I can. So they're called a delegate. So that's, uh, that is going to be a credit underwriting team. And so they 
perform the role, they don't custody funds. So those are always held in a smart contract. And that's one of the advantages of doing it this way. But what they do do is they will speak with borrowers, review the borrowers' financials, and negotiate commercial terms with the borrowers. So the right amount of interest, the right tenor, the size of the loan, so that they can maximize the chance of that borrower repaying the loan and earn a good interest rate on those loans. So their typical background will be financial services. So they might have worked in in banking. They might have worked at a fixed income uh, asset manager. They might have uh, worked in private equity or private credit themselves. But what the core thing is they understand financial statements. They understand loan structuring, so different terms. Because when, when you're kind of new to lending or banking, what you can assume is that it's kind of a binary yes or no. Like, do I want to lend to this person or not? But that's really only the start of it. There's ways that you can structure a loan so that even if somebody seems a little bit more borderline, you can just shorten the amount of time that you lend to them for, or you can increase the rate that you lend to them at. Or you can require things like collateralization or different structuring uh, of a loan so that you maximize your chance of getting that money back. But that's that's what the delegate does. Cool. And who are the customers? Who are the people that are borrowing through Maple Finance? Is it me, a retail investor? Is it an accredited investor? Is it an institution? Who are your typical clients? It's institutions. So the scale, like the small, if you're lending to retail, it's typically smaller in size. It's also a more regulated sector. Whereas when you start to go up in size, you're lending to institutions, they're more sophisticated. And so there's less regulation around it. So it's a little bit more flexible commercially. It's also easier in a lot of cases to underwrite them. To underwrite retail, you have to do a lot of them because you're trying to average out things like illness, divorce, loss of jobs. And that's you know that's a fairly well catered to market. Uh, whereas institutions is, a, is actually a shrinking market. Banks are pulling out of lending to institutions unless they're rated. And a lot of that market is now going to credit funds. So it goes to Aries, goes to Apollo, goes to Fortress Group. And so the rate of return on those loans is pretty good. The supply is too small for lending to that market. And so we saw an opportunity to kind of go in, muscle in there. And so the borrowers, uh, walking backwards about 12 or 18 months, would have only been market makers and market neutral funds. So I think companies like Wintermute, like GSR, B2C2, they didn't all borrow on the platform, but they all perform the function of providing liquidity on centralized exchanges. And so they need liquidity to do that. Like when you're trading BTC, it's often one of them who you are buying from or selling to. And so they need currency, they need liquidity in order to buy it or sell or you know borrow the BTC to sell to you. But they're generally hedged. So BTC goes up, they're not impacted. BTC goes down. They're not impacted. So that was kind of the core borrower. But now we're expanding into real-world asset lending. So last week, we launched a pool with a partner called Accrue and, and uh, a borrower in that pool called Intero. And what they do is they are financing IRS, so tax refunds or rebates to small businesses who are impacted by COVID. So a small business wants to open a new venue or office. They need money for a deposit now. They're expecting money back at the end of the quarter or in six months' time from the IRS, uh, but they want to put down the deposit this week. Well, they could borrow from Intero and from the, ultimately from that accrued pool. So it's helping real small businesses with problems of growth and access to capital. But that for us is going to be a big trend in 2023, which is assets and businesses and borrow, underlying borrowers who are in the real world, not just living on chain but where the source of capital comes from on-chain. 
And the advantage of this is real-time reporting, ease of access. I can honestly say there's probably no bank that will lend to an institution where the institution can draw down those funds at the click of a button. It would normally be on the phone or in sending instructions over email, and, it, and it's a pretty cumbersome uh, manual process. And so I expect we'll see more institutions try and leverage that technology. We'll dig into accrue in a little bit, but I did just want to clarify because you pulled this line of logic. The pool is going to be dealing with uh, employee retention credits, and this is through the IRS. Is it just this very specific instance? Because the way that I internalized it when I read IRS, if a company is expecting some sort of tax return, then they could take a loan out against that. But that's not necessarily the case. It's only using these very specific credits. Yes, that's right. It's, it's specifically for employee retention credits. Perfect. And before we dig in a little bit more, I just wanted to hear a little bit about your blockchain philosophy. Is there a multi-chain thesis? What network is Maple Finance operating on top of? I noticed that it used to be two networks, but now it's one. Is there a future for multiple networks? I think there is a future for multiple networks. So we consolidated because we wanted to move faster on core products. We had the most traction on Ethereum. We also built on Solana. I think Solana has very interesting technology and uh, I would love to see that grow. We made the decision that it's very important to consolidate resources over 2023. And so we wanted to ship features faster along one core product line and one core product roadmap. And this just allowed us to focus our time. So we're currently operating on Ethereum. We still have all of the code to, to operate Maple on Solana. And so we can do that as we have more flexibility in future and, and if TVL and the need for borrowing there picks up. And so I think probably overall, I, I do see there being a multi-chain future. We're also, we are interested in looking at products that would allow us to actually be accessible on other chains without having to go and fork our code and, and replicate the code on other chains. So there's interesting things like Superform, you know, had, had a brief conversation with uh, with Wormhole as well recently. And so I, I am very interested in that because it means then you only have to maintain one core code repo and then you have this kind of hub and spoke model where you have your, your code running on one chain and then you have spokes out to other chains where you can access liquidity. So I do like that concept. Yeah, that's really cool. And is all your code for Maple Finance open source? Can I find it on GitHub? You can. We just released v, uh, V2 on GitHub. So all those repos are open source. There is very new and uh, and very interesting and novel testing frameworks and this kind of you know sub modular repo uh, structure that the team used, which uh, I've seen a lot of people commenting on on Twitter. So if anyone is a code junkie, I, I do recommend going onto the uh, the Maple Labs GitHub and checking it out. And yeah, the other thing we did with V2 is we, we shifted over to ERC four six two six. So that what that does is is we think it will help with composability and incorporating and building, you know, Maple pool tokens into other protocols, whether it's as collateral, secondary markets, liquidity, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's really interesting. When you think of uh, institutional grade lending and borrowing, you don't necessarily think open source. So do your potential clients, future partners, is this like a friction point? Is this a sticking point for them? What are those sort of insights like from the institution and banking level type folks? I think having our code open source helps them get comfortable with accessibility because they can go and check it themselves. They can also see that the code has been audited. So we had multiple audits on, on V2. So I heard somebody express it. I think it was Alex Danko, but he expressed that the important thing about blockchain is you have this kind of narrow waste. So you have 
open source makes it broadly accessible, but then a narrow waste means everybody has to use the same standards. And that means that it becomes more, you get this network effect. And so if I look at, if I look to TradFi, you have this concept of like an ISIN, which is a security number, but it's effectively a ticker number for different securities and instruments. But those instruments don't live in any public place. They live on somebody's private ledger. And so what blockchain does is it makes everyone adhere to this same standard, but that makes it open source. Uh, so far more accessible and composable. And so if I think of the traditional finance system, it's a lot of private ledgers duct taped together by multi-billion dollar companies who charge effectively rent just for connecting private databases together. So I would be, if I was those companies, I'm kind of very afraid of interoperability and, and open standards, you know, like 4626. Yeah. And a lot of these companies and, and large financial institutions, they're oftentimes working on code bases and using languages that are decades old at this point. Some of them have been around since before I was even alive. COBOL. Yeah, COBOL. Exactly. So is this kind of a reckoning moment that these institutions are having where they ha they're realizing that their code is outdated, their developers are retiring, the people who know this language, and they have to upgrade and update their software bases and the languages that they use? Are they kind of having a reckoning moment right now? Is this something that they're embracing? What's the, like the general vibe? It is a bit of a reckoning moment. It's not really a reckoning moment, though, that's induced by blockchain. Even when I was at, uh, at NAB back in 2014 to 2017, there was a project in 2014 and 2015, which was NextGen. So it was upgrading their core banking platform. And it was a multi-year project and, and multi-billion dollars in, in CapEx. And so all banks have to go through that. Like I think if you look at JP Morgan, they probably spend about, I think it's like five or six billion a year on just kind of like core technology upgrades. But that's just natural tech debt. Because if you look at all of these banks existed prior to digital technology, and so they had to build their own system. And then they found the system needs to be interoperable with new technology and other people's systems. And that's really where it breaks because the original databases and core banking systems were never designed with that in mind. And so what happens now to them? They either spend billions of dollars and they, they have the finances to do that. But the, uh, the problem is, can they do that without breaking their old systems? And can they do it in a way that they don't end up with this horrible user experience? And what will happen is if, is if they, they do execute on it poorly, banking traffic and, and user growth will go to the neobanks who are all building their new systems. So you have like Revolut, Starlight, all these other ones that are kind of, they don't have a 40-year-old legacy banking system as a problem. And so you might see banks consolidate by trying to buy some of those neobanks uh, but otherwise, I think what you'll see is actually more nimble participants. It's, it's the fragmentation or the unbundling of the banking stack. So it's not really clear to me why you would go to a bank that gives you insurance and a personal checking account and a business banking account and wealth management and a home loan and a car loan and a credit card. Like It's actually not clear to me anymore why they wouldn't just exist as monoline services that are run by a specialist who has a good set of skills there. And I think that specialist will have a smaller technology footprint. And so they're actually going to be much more competitive and able to offer a better user experience and to specialize. So anyway, that was a long-winded answer of saying there is a bit of a reckoning, but it's like, you know, it's it's kind of happening slowly. And uh, what I expect to happen is that piece by piece, these business lines will get taken on chain. If you look at what we're doing, we're doing institutional lending. I think we can do institutional lending at a lower cost to income ratio than any bank. 
And therefore, I think anyone who uses our infrastructure is going to be more profitable at the same interest rate than a bank. And so ultimately, that will just drive traffic our way. Yeah. And your thesis proved correct for most of 2022. I do want to caveat that Maple Finance is the, the Shopify of this institutional lending. So you are at the whims of kind of broader external macro market forces. So in 2022, earlier in the year, you guys experienced record levels of lending prior to the new receivables pool that we'll talk about in a bit. Maple didn't require any collateral to take out loans, but focused on the borrower's ability to pay back its loans based on its creditworthiness. So how did this model work? What's the sort of... um, And you've alluded to this in some of your previous podcasts that you've been on and the Maple Finance Education Series, that a lot of the institutional world doesn't provide collateral when they're taking out loans. So could you just explain a little bit about why that is, how that process works, and why it worked so well up until the collapse of FTX, 3AC, Celsius, BlockFi, all the contagion last year? How did that work well until it didn't? How did uncollateralized lending work well until it didn't? Yeah. So it's a two-part question. So A, how does uncollateralized lending just work in general in the institutional world? Because our listeners won't have insight into that. And B, why did it work so well last year until it didn't? Yeah. So how lending works to businesses and traditional finance is typically uncollateralized. So we'll have you've got broad classes of borrowing and, and lending. So you have loans that might be collateralized by real estate. That's the residential real estate market, also commercial real estate. But that might be you loan a billion dollars to a company that wants to property developer who wants to build a skyscraper or buy a skyscraper. So it'd be uh, lending collateralized by real estate. But that real estate can't just be instantly sold the way Bitcoin can to back a loan. And so if you look at how Apple borrows, Apple will borrow uncollateralized. They might have some senior secured facilities, but typically most of their cap- most of their uh, borrowings will be uncollateralized. And when I say uncollateralized, it means that if you're lending to them, you get the money back before they could pay a dividend. So you get the money back before equity. And if they default, equity needs to be fully wiped out before you start to lose money. But that's still an unsecured loan in that they haven't pledged any collateral to you. And that's because they're a business. Apple is not in the business of like buying stock and Bitcoin and other assets. So this phenomenon of borrowing over collateralized against Bitcoin and ETH is solely, it's solely restricted to digital asset space. The closest corollary in traditional markets would be, there's actually two corollaries. One might be agricultural finance, where you could lend against some very liquid collateral like wheat or soybeans, and they can be sold very quickly. The other one would be lending against stock certificates. So like Apple buys a bunch of shares in Microsoft and then borrows against them. And then those shares can be sold if Apple defaults. But it's not really conducive to running a business. But the core borrowing that began in, in crypto was Bitcoin-backed lending and borrowing because you have this asset that they can give to you and then you can sell it really quickly if, uh, if the person's in danger of defaulting or can't meet a margin call. And so that was the bulk of lending uh, in digital assets. But then as the market expanded, you had people chasing volume and you had more capital pumped into those companies like Genesis, like BlockFi, by VC and uh, other depositors that was chasing a yield. And it was promised a very high yield. And so 
At the same time, on the borrower side, you had borrowers who now developed a track record and they were quite large. You know, you're, you're looking at market makers who have hundreds of millions of equity on their balance sheet. And so people were getting comfortable lending large amounts to them uncollateralized because they were profitable, they had equity to back it. That trade uh, went the wrong way for a number of those uh, centralized finance providers when the borrowers started taking directional risk. FreeAC ultimately was taking directional risk, and uh, as was Alameda. Alameda also had different issues in terms of fraud, FreeAC as well. But the, the core issue was that the funds were not being used in a market-neutral kind of way. And so the real cause of the problem is market is ultimately market structure and then poor risk underwriting practices by the lenders. The core, like most of the loans on Maple, and we are, of course, the platform, we don't actually make the underwriting decisions ourselves. That's the, the role of the delegate. Maple had originated about 1.9 billion in loans, and there were two defaulting borrowers, so Orthogonal and uh, Babel. And in each case, it was due to issues on the trading side of the business, which caused them to default. And uh, so that was about 45 million of cumulative defaults, so about a 2.3% default rate, which is actually not, not bad and compares very favorably with the CFI track record of underwriting over that period. But what has prompted people, what has prompted us to look at doing now is diversifying the lending opportunities. So push more into real-world assets because ultimately, whilst those market makers, if done properly, should be market neutral and thus not correlated to crypto prices, their appetite to borrow is correlated to crypto prices. And you can see that there are operational risks, like whether they get hacked, or whether they have funds on a centralized exchange like FTX. You know, a lot of them trade on Binance. Binance does not have audited financials. Binance does not have a board of directors. Would I lend to Binance? Like those are the questions you have to ask yourself. And ultimately, if you're lending to a market maker who trades 70% or 50% of their volume on, on Binance, are you comfortable with that ultimate counterparty risk? So anyway, so what we're seeing now is a push into non-correlated forms of lending. So tax credit receivables, reinsurance. We're also looking at doing a pool that would bring the treasury cash management services on chain as well. So lending against uh, T-bills. And then on the market making and lending to a digital asset hedge fund side of things, we would look at bringing active collateral management into that equation. So we would still have our loans on chain. The pools are still holding funds non-custodially and bankruptcy remote. But now you can have a qualified custodian who takes layer one Bitcoin, doesn't rehypothecate it, and where that can speak with our smart contracts. So we're pretty excited about that. And that's, uh, that's already underway. So from kind of like a personal perspective, you kind of hit it out the park in the beginning of the year. And then you see like uh, these supposedly big blue chip type names in the crypto space start to go under one by one. What does that do for your team's confidence in its due diligence process? Because it's kind of got to feel like a slap in the face when so many people were trusting FTX and this just kind of the fraud and the collapse kind of came out of nowhere. How does that change your new due diligence process? Because it's kind of got to be like a, a splash of cold water in the face. And uh, coming back to the due diligence. So we, we don't do the due diligence on the borrowers because we, we don't uh, decide that. But what we want to review is the pool delegates and how they're doing due diligence on borrowers. And so there is going to be a big emphasis where they're lending to digital asset firms on verifiability. So using things like Fedora to see what the asset balance on centralized exchanges are and full verification, like proof of on chain, proof of control of wallets, proof of the on chain balances, and then tying that with what's happening off chain. 
I mean, ultimately, the, the two core sources of those two defaults that had occurred on the platform, because remember that the delegates had actually had a lot of wins on the board. So overall, very low default rate. Uh, and also, they managed to exit Alameda you know, months before they defaulted through sort of prudent underwriting of the balance sheet. But the ultimate risk came from op risk. So in Babel was the first borrower default. That was poor controls between the trading arm and the lending arm of the business. And ultimately, the loan was to the lending arm. And then with orthogonal, again, sort of issues on the trading side of the business. And so what we do want to do is really bring up that standard of underwriting for the delegates. And so we've implemented internally, we have a commercial committee that meets once a month, proposes delegates, will have a, a framework and a due diligence memo on those delegates that will cover everything from how do they, how do they do underwriting? How do they manage operational risk? What's their background and history? That is something we're concentrating more on. And as well, you can have a healthier level of diversity of delegates across the platform as well. Probably last year, there was an over-concentration among a smaller number of delegates, and that needs to be diversified so that we don't have, as a platform and a protocol, don't have systemic exposure to one. I hope this next question I'm going to ask makes sense. Does the diversification of the delegate pools, is that what was sort of an inspiration for Maple 2.0? Or is Maple 2.0 kind of created first and then that allows for this expanded pool of delegates? The two are actually independent. So we could with Maple 2.0, we can have more delegates. We could have had more delegates under Maple 1.0. But remember that when we launched that delegate business model was very new. So there weren't a lot of people who were taking us up on it. And so there was a smaller number of delegates. Now that we're more familiar, we've even seen other platforms kind of adopting this delegate model. So there are now more people willing to participate as a delegate. What Maple 2.0 has helped with is it streamlined the withdrawals. So before you might have had an issue where if you're in the pool, Dylan, and I was in the pool, you could try and front run me if you thought a borrower was going to default to exit. And now that can't happen. So now you and I are both treated equally and we both get the same window of time and you have a maximum amount that you can withdraw and I have a maximum amount that I can withdraw. But the two, if I withdraw before you, you're still able to withdraw. The other thing we can do is we can impair a borrower who seems in distress early so that that impairment is shared across a higher number of deposits rather than people trying to exit to front run that impairment. So I think both of, both of those are very important elements. We also took MPL out of cover, which is that subordinated first loss capital. And this just means that um, there's no wrong way risk for people. Mm -hmm. And MPL is, is the platform's native token? Governance. Yeah, native governance token. And so was that used as sort of a backstop for collateral in case of, you know, hitting the fan? It was used uh, for a backstop to have the delegates have skin in the game. And also it could be liquidated if there were defaults within a pool. The first example you gave, was that the first lost capital for lenders that Maple 2.0 now enacts? Yeah. So the first lost capital is now uh, just USDC. So there's no denomination or no basis risk where it's, it's no longer denominated in a fluctuating currency. So one of the things we'll do over the course of this year, we'll introduce tranching probably in a more fulsome way, which will mean that you can have a larger proportion of protection for people who are lending. That then opens up really interesting things like maybe we could get one of these pools rated. Then it starts to look more interesting for pension funds, insurance companies that just want like stable, protected rates on, uh, on lending. And the tranching, will that have some sort of insurance for like safer levels of higher tranches? How do you envision that? Tranching naturally provides a form of insurance because it's like 
let's say uh, you and I want to lend to a friend, let's call them Andy. If you lend Andy $80 and I lend Andy $20, but my $20 is subordinate to you, if Andy can only repay $90, then I lose $10. I get $10 back, but you get your full 80 back. So that's how tranching works. So it naturally offers a form of insurance to whoever is kind of senior in that in that structure. Perfect. And this might be just the because I again am not in this in the space that you walk in. So like with somebody like a crew or one of the other delegates that you have joined the platform is the biggest hurdle for these traditional kind of institutions coming into the space like learning how to convert their traditional assets into a digital asset into a token what's kind of like the process for your delegate partners as they walk down this road and eventually enter into the quote unquote web3 space one of the biggest hurdles is you're quite right that on-ramping and off-ramping so we lend like the platform lends in USDC which is a stablecoin I would much rather have <laughs> stable coins, like an easily low cost, cheap way of transferring money around the world than be it held in a bank account. And so I think adoption of stablecoin usage will grow over time. We are even talking to a bank about how they can grow, grow the adoption and penetration of a stablecoin they launched. But when banks start launching it, I don't see why, like, I don't see why that process wouldn't continue of, uh, of growing adoption. But I think that the trends are, if we look at what's happened in the last six months, Apple Pay now accepts USDC payments. Visa has settled transactions with USDC. So that's like a tailwind where if we just, you know, if we remain in business doing this lending, over time, that level of adoption of stablecoin usage will grow and that will become less of a problem for us. We are tactically looking out for solutions for on and off ramps. But uh, that, that's something where I think the trend is, you know, the trend is our friend there. Yeah. And from your conversations that you're having with institutions, are these conversations about using digital stable coins? Is it solely directed around USDC and USDT, these kind of crypto native stable coins? Or is the conversation about CBDCs starting to leak in as well? I think CBDCs are interesting. My ultimate vision is that CB, like if you look at one of the financial institutions we're looking at supporting uh, their own stablecoin, that stablecoin's ERC20. So it's happening on Ethereum. Like ultimately, if you're going to issue a stablecoin, you wouldn't go and create a different private chain for it. Uh, you would just do it on the chain where there is the most liquidity. And so I think those will proliferate across kind of the core chain that people are using today. And there's no reason CBDCs can't be part of that. I think the challenge with CBDCs are is that can a government go and hire a bunch of smart contract or protocol engineers? Like very difficult to see the best engineering talent in a country going and working for the government creating CBDCs. So just on a cost basis, can they bear the engineering cost of doing that? I actually think the solution will end up being privatized. So if you think about it, you know, even, even with highways, you'll often have a public-private partnership where a private company will, will do that. They'll, they'll take a financing package to do so, but they'll earn a management fee from that. I think. Stablecoin issuance will follow the model sort of set by circle with USDC, where you have several kind of mandated private sector providers who just have to adhere to SLAs set by the Federal Reserve. And uh, they collect a fee for running that enterprise. And it's ultimately lower cost and a better user experience than if the government had just gone to try and provide it themselves. 
So I think that'll happen in every country. That's fascinating insight. How are the banks going to be able to lure these open source smart contract developers who know this technology inside and out? Banks have a very difficult problem because they're not even allowed to hold tokens at the moment. So this is like very interesting in that it's happening at an offshore bank. But as far as I know, there are no onshore banks that are even close to being permitted to hold tokens themselves. And so as long as they keep saying they don't have the regulatory clarity that they would need to hold assets themselves, then what you're going to see is a competitor will come in who is not regulated the same way, who will, it's kind of like classic competition, but I think you'll see a competitor come in like Circle, issue their own stablecoin, and then eventually back their way into a banking license or a banking charter. And that will be very challenging for the banks to then enter and compete with that. Mm -hmm. And right now, the regulatory landscape in the US is very discombobulated. There's competition between regulators for who has the right to lay the law down and, and regulate this industry. Do you have a positive outlook in the short term, meaning one to three years, that the US will kind of get their stuff together at the risk of crypto companies kind of choosing to locate offshore? Ooh, tough question. Uh, I, I think, you know, next two years is probably difficult to see any major breakthroughs in regulation. I think stablecoins are probably the first one. I think over, uh, let's call it like a three to five year period, I'm, I'm probably much more optimistic on potential regulatory outcomes. I'm naturally optimistic, but I would point to the fact that we have had kind of intransigence in regulation. Like if you look at credited investor laws and where most hedge funds are located, most hedge funds are not located within the US. And that's a legal issue that has persisted for about 30 years and costs the US uh, GDP points. Like there's no other way to look at that, but, but there are GDP points that are flowing offshore because you can't easily set up hedge funds and things onshore. So if you have to set up crypto vehicles offshore, lawyers will offer that service and people will take them up on it and it will just be an extra cost that is borne by the system. But I, I hope that's not the case and that you can do that onshore and therefore that income can you know continue to be reinvested in the US economy. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you for... I, I just appreciate the uh, perspective and the insight just from the world that you operate within. It's, it's nice to hear different perspectives. So... Before the collapse of FTX and Celsius, 3AC and all these entities, very crypto heavy entities, before you kind of saw the issues that you saw with these types of lenders, was Maple Finance already thinking about adding real world assets to the platform? Did the collapse of these crypto entities kind of expedite that process? What were you guys thinking? Uh, yes to both. So... We've always thought about doing real-world assets on the platform because the ultimate vision is a capital market. So really, I want to carve out a niche for Maple and, and we want to carve out a niche uh, in lending to institutions who are doing innovative things. I look at uh, growing industries, whether it's space and uh, some of the companies that are doing things there that will require large amounts of debt financing to do those ambitious projects whether it's that, whether it's things like nuclear power, like I want us to be financing those cutting edge technologies and companies that are doing really good things there. I think a lot of them are, are going to have challenges borrowing from banks just because banks are now so heavily regulated that they mostly get pushed towards either lending to publicly rated companies or to residential real estate because you know the job of the regulator is to squish the amount of risk that is borne by depositors. And so I think banks become less exciting businesses and 
and less willing to finance kind of the cutting edge of the private sector. So I think that's, you know, that's where we can expand. And that means real assets. And so we were always, always heading in that direction. We just realized we had to take it in stepping stones. We couldn't go and finance like a massive infrastructure project of a hundred million bucks or more right off the bat. Uh, we never would have got started. And I think that's where a lot of other people who try to be entrepreneurs in this space fell short was they didn't realize they would have to take in an incrementalist or a sequential process to get there. So we've done that. I mean, if you look at the minor finance pool that we were launching, that was like 11 months of work to get that off the ground. And so that meant investment in legal contracts, identifying the market. And so we'll continue that trend. The collapse of FTX though accelerated that because otherwise we could have lived off of this existing market of market makers and market neutral funds. And uh, now we're going to be hungrier if we continued lending to that segment alone. And so, you know, that's why we're going for these non-correlated segments, whether it's tax receivables, reinsurance, treasury yield, eventually leveraged finance, and our real estate are all segments that we want to bring on chain. Awesome. And uh, kind of wrapping up, I did just want to get a, another little Eli 5 question in. Receivable financing is one of the oldest commercial finance products, but... I myself not being in this space, and, and I would assume many of our listeners might not be privy to what a trade receivable is. So could you just share, just like, what is that? Explain it to me like I'm five. And why is it generally seen as kind of a safe asset to integrate into Maple Finance? Yeah. So let's imagine, Dylan, that you have a cookie manufacturer. And so you produce delicious chocolate cookies, and your cookies get sold at Walmart. So what you do is at the start of the month, you ship 100 pallets of cookies to Walmart. And then Walmart says, we're really big. We're going to pay you a 90-day term. We'll pay you for these cookies, but you've got to wait 90 days to get it. And so what they do is they take it. And in that time, they sell all of it. And then they pay you at the end of the 90 days. Now, Walmart is a really good counterparty, but that is what you call an accounts receivable or a trade receivable for you. When you give the cookies to Walmart without payment, you're effectively financing them. And so what trade receivables finance is, is that we could give you 90 cents on the dollar, like let's say ultimately Walmart needed to pay you a million dollars for those cookies, we could give you $900,000. And then 90 days later, we collect from Walmart the $1 million. And then our implicit yield or implicit interest rate is that $100,000 multiplied by four in that instance. But it's good for us because it's short term. So we're only waiting 90 days to collect the money. We can look through at that counterparty and say, well, Dylan might be a really small company, Dylan's Biscuits, but Walmart is a really large company. It's publicly rated. And so actually it's like AAA risk, uh, not AAA, it's not going to be AAA, but it could be like A plus risk or something like that. So then you have good counterparty exposure. So good yield, good counterparty exposure, short dated, three things that make it pretty good. Perfect. Thank you. You kind of alluded to this earlier. But I just want to clarify, is Maple Finance looking to support any other forms of collateral beyond USDC? USDC is not the collateral we support. USDC is the denomination that we lend in. And so we, we've lent in uh, wrapped ETH. Uh, happy to look at other types of stable coins. Uh, we have been pitched on very, just about every, every stable coin. But remember, we also have to source the inventory. So I remember people pitching us on USD back in the day. We declined to do that one, fortunately. Smart. We've also looked at Tether, uh, but we need to source a large inventory of Tether in order to be able to lend it. And so it is like any business. We have inputs and USDC is one of our inputs. 
And, uh, you know, we're, we're very happy working with Circle as a partner. We would like to support more denominations. And particularly as we, as we expand and serve people in other countries, the idea of a Euro stablecoin, an AUD stablecoin, a Japanese yen stablecoin are all very interesting. Awesome. Uh, just a couple more questions. I kind of want to end on a high level kind of big picture conversation. What is your perspective on the future of real world tokenized assets on chain? Are we just heading towards a world where it's T-bills and the assets you've already discussed? Or is it also going to impact retail in a way where the deed to my car or the title to my house is also going to be on chain? What's just your take and your insight on that? I think naturally in the far off future, it will be the deed to your house will be on chain. The deed to your car will be on chain. Because if you look at it, it's uh, the alternative is that that sits in a database somewhere. And ultimately, the lowest cost database is a public one. So I, I think those eventually do go on chain. And then you could have a loan against your car and then the token for your car or the receivable. You could either have your car is tokenized or a loan secured by your car is tokenized. And when it's tokenized, it becomes much easier to package it up and to finance it at a wholesale level. So vehicle auto loans are one of the biggest securitization markets in the US and in Europe. Volkswagen, Mercedes, Toyota, all huge issuers of uh, asset-backed securities. And I think that's naturally going to find its way on chain. It'll take a long time though, because it's already a relatively well-catered to market. It's very liquid and margins are very tight. Awesome. Wrapping up, what are you, and this could either be the broader crypto space, blockchain space, or about Maple. What are you most excited about for 2023? All right. I'm going to give an answer that is Maple specific. So we're launching the treasuries pool soon. So that is going to be a pool where loans are secured by T-bills. I think it's hugely exciting. There's no cash management products on chain. If you look at it, you have to put your funds into Aave or Compound and bear smart contract risk for 1%. Or... Meanwhile, treasuries have been earning, you know, four and a half percent off chain. So I think that's a product that is sorely needed in the space. So we're going to try and cater to that. But I think over 2023, it's the continued trend of real world assets coming on chain. So we want to see the growth of the accrued pool and, uh, and other pools that we're launching soon. Perfect. And if anyone who is listening to this wants to keep in contact with you or with Maple Finance, what's the best way to do so? So we are maple.finance. You can go to our website and register interest if you're interested in lending. Or uh, we are pretty active on Twitter. So at Maple Finance, one word. Uh, I am at Syrup Sid, one word. And if you slide into our DMs, we'll be pretty responsive. So yeah, maple.finance or at Maple Finance on Twitter. Sid, thank you so much for uh, sharing your time with us today and joining the Smart Economy podcast. I was looking forward to this conversation. I don't generally get to chat with folks who are in your kind of realm with traditional finance and as well as the crypto blockchain space. So it was a fascinating conversation. Great to hear your insights. And I really look forward to uh, following the, the storyline that will be Maple Finance through 2023 and beyond. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Dylan. Really appreciate it. Cheers. Well, what did you think of that conversation? I thought it was really fascinating to learn more about Sid's somewhat negative perspective when he first heard about Bitcoin while he was working at a bank, but how his tune changed when he moved over to the client side of the industry and saw the value that public blockchain networks can offer. It was also really easy to internalize how Maple Finance operates when Sid compared their infrastructure to Shopify which provides tools for e-commerce entities that already manage and run their own business. And 
I'm really intrigued to see how the integration of pools backed by real-world assets will decouple Maple Finance from the whims of the crypto markets. It will be really interesting to see how Maple Finance expands in 2023. On that note, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support the show, please keep Neo News Today in mind when voting for your Neo Council representative as part of Neo's governance process. We appreciate you and look forward to catching you next time.